Bonjour, live sparklers. It's Claire. Welcome on the Integrally Alive podcast and thanks for listening. Here we explore stories, wisdom and tools for shifting from resilience, for resistance and stress to resilience and living the life you choose. My guest today is a crisis counselor, best-selling author and captivating advocate for emotional health. With a background spanning industries and continents, she produced stories for BBC News, Koran and Australian Yoga School, and was an award-winning Google strategist. However, her greatest teachers have come from her gravest challenges, losing her dignity, her mind, and nearly her life. Now, she guides people through the conversations we often went from, uncovering the treasures on the other side. She is currently a graduate student at Columbia University's Department of Counseling and Clinical Psychology, and she just wrote her first book together with her dad, which I find super interesting, Turning Crisis into Success, a serial entrepreneur's lesson on overcoming challenge while keeping your shit together. And yes, it is available on Amazon, and you can find her at charliejaffe.com. And eh, this is Charlie Jaffe, and Charlie, I'm super happy to welcome you on the show. I had this, I mean, I was waiting for the occasion to invite you, so super happy to see you. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So today, we'll talk about fear, turning your pain into power, owning your story, learning from our crisis and enjoying life. Yes. My favorite things. (laughs) So one of the purpose of this podcast is to share stories of resilience. But how can I say that yours is not a story? I mean, it's not a story. It seems like you could have died a few times in your life. So I can, I don't even know where to begin actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there's so many options, but uh, I guess if we're looking at sort of those really hard and life-changing moments, I would probably start with the one that actually came uh, closest to my death. Um, And that was actually when I was 20 years old. So I had been playing rugby my freshman year of college and uh, my mom was not a big fan of it. And unfortunately, I kind of proved her right. <laughs> um, but had a, had a just a nasty tackle that the, the math lead in me, I loved math as a kid, would have loved the fact that they said it was a physicist's dream. It was just a total freak accident where the impact on the ground um, snapped my leg in half, which I uh, would not recommend. Wow, yeah, no. Um, My leg was not the shape that legs are intended to make. Um, But essentially from that, I developed what's called a pulmonary fat embolism. So basically, my body started suffocating itself and there was no treatment to stop it. Um, And so it was a pretty terrifying experience, Uh, you know, starting to turn blue really quite dangerous. And I had a handful of these what I call sort of suffocation attacks. Um, And the thing that really sticks out to me the most is just, I I had these very altered states of consciousness that I didn't really know how to understand. Mm. Uh, But it was before that, that feeling of a room full of doctors running to my bedside and not being able to do anything. So for me, fighting for my life on my own 
was terrifying. But for other people, you know, you may not be in a hospital bed, but I think so many of us have had that feeling where we're facing this massive challenge and we're the only ones that can be our own savior. Mm -hmm. We have to help ourselves out. Uh, and that can be really terrifying. So for me, that moment was, were those moments that happened a few times. Um, they were the hardest, most sort of physically and mentally excruciating moments of my life but they were also the most present I've ever been, the most alive I've ever felt. And it took a couple of years, uh, a number of years, but eventually they became my greatest teachers, the things that I'm most grateful for. Um, and so it, it, it took a long time and I didn't talk about it at first. Um, and when I didn't talk about it, it came back to haunt me. So it wasn't just those moments, it was the way that after trying to burying that, bury them thinking they would disappear, not realizing that I was sort of planting these toxic seeds, the things that we run away from don't just disappear, they come back in different ways. And oftentimes we can't tell these things that are coming back why they're there. And so it took these things really coming in, uh, it really felt like they were attacking my mind um, for me to look at them. But once I did start looking at them and did start to learn how to treat them as teachers and how to use them as signposts to look at different parts of myself, uh, eventually what that did was it taught me how to live a more full life so that one day when I do face my own death, it's not with this feeling of, oh shit, because that's really did what I felt then. I mean, yes, I was really young. Yes, I was unprepared, but I feel like it's helped really given me the tools to lead a life so full that at the end of it, I can look back and say, yeah, yeah, I did that well. Wow, so there is already so much in that. <laughs> so many directions we can go. But actually something struck me in your experience because yeah, you said it, but you don't need we don't need to be on a on a hospital bed to feel like we are the only one facing what we are facing and no one can help us. But actually many times it's not so true. We just are so afraid to ask for help for many reasons. Maybe we'll go into that as well. But in your case, it was actually true. So it must be terrifying. And I'm wondering how they were, I mean, the, the caregivers were managing uh, your physical health on one side, okay, but then also the intense fear you were going through and the mental uh, challenges that it was coming with. Yeah, and I, that's it. I love that you picked up on that. And I'll, I'll sort of bookmark that asking for help piece because that's so important yeah. and I'm so passionate about it. But in that, yeah, in that moment, I think one of the greatest gifts that I had is that there wasn't really space for fear. Um, and for me, it was a little bit different. I was very oxygen deprived. So my brain was moving a lot slower, but it was also just the intensity of the challenge. And a, a lot of times in crisis moments, what, there's people, not just myself, a lot of times we hear about people doing extraordinary things in moments of crisis where they just say, I didn't even think about it. I was yeah. just so focused. Yeah. And when we talk about states of flow in these really present places, there's mm -hmm. so much of it comes back to being in that present moment. And when we meditate or we do these different activities, we try and train our brain to be able to do that. At 20, I hadn't meditated before, but, um, but really that's what it was is those moments were so demanding that I was actually completely present. So I, I truly believe that if I was scared, I wouldn't have survived because every, it felt like every atom in my body, every ounce of my existence had to be focused on trying to get oxygen into my system. And it really felt like just like 
gripping onto life, quite honestly. But um, so for me, in the hospital experience, it was such a crisis experience that there wasn't much space for the mental health work. But I think that um, where I'm really passionate about bringing it in is when people leave, because I I, you know, over two dozen doctors uh, and medical professionals I interacted with, probably more than that. Um, and my recovery was long. It took me four months to learn to walk again and all these different things. And not a single person ever acknowledged, hey, you know, you just survived something pretty hard. You might need some help or you might struggle. Yeah. Um, and because that was never brought up, when I did start to have these mental health challenges, um, in my head, I was like, well, no, no one said that this should be the case. So I shouldn't be feeling it. Um, oh, and so God, I nice. as weakness and it didn't actually come up for a couple months and I didn't, I wasn't familiar with the world of mental health. So I didn't know that post-traumatic stress experiences can actually show up mm. months later. Um, so that's part of why I'm so passionate about opening up what we call these uncomfortable conversations Yes, uh, because with emotional fitness, well, with physical fitness, we don't start training for a marathon at the starting line. We try and train ahead of time so that when we're starting to exert ourselves, we're prepared. But a lot of times when it comes to our emotional lives, um, we don't actually look at these things until we're in a place of crisis. And that's not, is doable, but it's much harder. It's not the ideal time for us to begin to stretch those muscles. So that was, that was my experience. But I also think that it's very easy for us to forget about the caretakers. Like you brought up caretakers. That hospital experience was far scarier for my mom than it was for me. Yeah. Like, I can't even, it gives me goosebumps. It brings me to actually legitimate tears to think about what it's like to be a mother, watching your kid slowly disappear and slowly lose their life and having the people around do nothing, like not be able to do anything. She mm -hmm. at one point had asked a doctor, like, what, there has to be something else that you can do. And the doctor turned to her and said, do you believe in God? Um, because prayer is your best treatment. Uh, like a lot of times we don't know how to show up in a way to support the people who are supporting people. Mm. And it's those caretakers oftentimes that can be the make or break. Like having my mom by my side the entire time, like that unconditional support. Yeah. I think that really gave me a lot of the strength that I needed. If, if she could have healed me through osmosis, like she would <laughs> She was there before visiting hours started, after they ended. One of my, like, it was just, it was amazing the way that she could show up. Um, like she is not only the person that brought me into the world, she's the reason I've been able to survive it, both in the hospital and in the aftermath. And so when we talk about self-care and taking care of ourselves and taking care of people in crisis, it's not just that initial person in crisis, it's the network around it. How do we as a community, be able to support each other so that everyone has the space to do that. Oh yeah, that's so true. And again, there's so many directions to go. But it's also, I mean, when you use the word crisis and the fact that no one was helping you after that crisis in these aspects. And I think there's maybe something wrong about the way we, we look at crisis, actually, because it seems like it's a bit like the marathon you were talking about. It's like, oh, it's, it starts here, it ends there, and then it's okay. <laughs> well, there is a road going to the beginning, <laughs> like there is a downward spiral going, yeah. I mean, unless it's an accident like yours, actually. <laughs> and I think on both sides, right? It's uh, often there's that lead up and it's not done. Yes, exactly. 
And oftentimes it's like, it's going up and then it's going down again and up and down and up and down and so on. So it's really, uh, yeah, I'm fine now <laughs> forever. <laughs> the happily exactly. ever, ever after uh, really is not there. So I'm not sure. I mean, the way we look at it, it's a bit binary, like black and white often. And so the way we are treating with it or the way we, uh, we deal with that, it's also a bit black and white. And sometimes it's just not helpful actually to see it like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the one thing I find really helpful is just sort of being curious about like how the mind works. And I became really curious about that just through my own experiences. Um, but as humans, we were designed for certainty. We're designed yeah. to want to put things in boxes. Evolutionarily, that's super helpful. When we're out on, you know, in, a, in the jungle or uh, in the Sahara, wherever it is, trying to survive with running away from animals, Certainty is huge. It's wildly important. We don't live in that environment anymore, but our minds are still designed for it. So when we say, okay, I can, this, I can put this in a box, whether it is a, a crisis and a challenge or any aspect of life, our family, our relationships, um, the way, you know, our spirituality, whatever it is, we like to put things in boxes because certainty is safe, but um, it's not reality. And sometimes when we hit that point where we're choosing to try and put things in a box outside of it, those messy parts of our reality, I think that's a lot of times where our struggle can come from. When we refuse to see the things that don't fit inside the box. Yeah. Uh, yeah when we look at uh, a map, that map is not the territory. We simplify it in order to be able to understand it, but we don't show up. We take a map of a hiking trail. We don't show up to the hiking trail and think it'll be identical. We recognize that there's some difference. But I think when we look at life in general, a lot of times we get these ideas of how things work and we're not able to be flexible and realize like it's more complicated than oftentimes we like to see that. And being able to embrace that complexity, I think is what allows us to adapt and really get a lot of the meaning from things, but it's scary. Um, so I think a lot of times it's training in how do we be able to dance with fear and embrace mm -hmm and use it as a tool rather than trying to run from it or to numb it or obsess over it or project it or try and throw it at other people. Like there's so many different ways we avoid yes. sitting it. But I think being able to say, hey, I see you, let's look at this is actually the strongest thing we can do. Yes. Often, you, I mean, I, I think it also comes from the way we have, again, it's be binary. You are uh, either mentally ill or physically ill. And then you will be addressed to one service or the other and this doctor or that doctor. But we need, we need supports in healing in all of our, of our bodies. So emotionally as well and intellectually, yes, what's happening to me? Sometimes it can get really scary when something's happening to you and you don't know what. And no one's had the answer. It happens a lot, actually. Absolutely. Um, I think that each one of those is a spectrum, right? So when we look at something like physical illness or mental challenge, it's not an on or off button. Yes, and I think yes. sometimes we, when we see it in that, as you were saying, that binary way, we can be like, oh no, but I'm not that extreme. I'm not that extreme. And yeah. we're going down the spectrum and we're not addressing it because we don't want to acknowledge it. Mm -mm. Uh, the best way to, pro, to, uh, to support ourselves and to keep it from going to that extreme is to see it in those early stages and to jump on it then. It's easier when it's something physical because it's more measurable. It has more of that certainty. 
when it's going on inside our head, it's messier. Uh, and that's why I find part of why I find it so interesting is because uh, I, you know, I like order, I like certainty, I like measurement. And when I get see that challenge, a part of me is like, okay, how do I organize it? And then I was like, oh, right. No, we need to be more creative uh, in how we approach it. It's not going to have that litmus test. Yeah, also physically, you know, so there is, we're very good in tricking ourselves into, no, it's not that bad. And we get used as well to, I mean, it's a survival skill as well, to get used to, uh, after some time, the nervous system doesn't send the same signal. So we can get on and be functional in our life. But yeah, we are still spiraling down. And, and it struck me when you to, were talking about your experiences that you were saying that you didn't realize in the beginning how much you were affected mentally by this, uh, by this crisis. And it's so relevant to, I mean, most people I know don't know they are in depression, in burnout, even suicidal sometimes, until a kind of big crisis where they're like, oh, okay, that's too big. I cannot ignore it anymore. Because we don't know the sign, actually. So how we cannot recognize that we are going that way if you don't know the, um, the steps, you know, the signs going to there. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I've actually, um, I'm so glad you brought that up because... I did the same thing like with myself. I was like, no, I'm fine. No, I'm fine. And eventually you know, I was having panic attacks on a pretty daily basis and still being like, but I'm not crazy and I'm yeah. fine. It was that internalized stigma. I remember when I was in therapy and my therapist gave me the diagnosis of uh, severe depression and PTSD. Uh, I remember push, really pushing back and she tried to say, okay, well, how many times a day just remind <laughs> are you having panic attacks? And my response was, they're not panic attacks, they're involuntary breathing experiences. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a side of that that can be seen as very resilient, right? Like, oh yeah. no, she's still doing all these things in the world where really, no, it was that inability to look at it and to see it. And when we look at burnout, um, which is affects how our brains operate, it affects different aspects yeah. of our brains, the way that they're uh, firing, which then lead to these symptoms of disengagement, emotional exhaustion. Um, and, and in a really extreme cases, it leads to suicidality. Mm. Um, and I actually have been lucky to be able to be working uh, and doing a bit of research around this with some physicians uh, and, and medical professionals, because it's pretty horrific, the statistics. It's over half yes. of physicians. Um, and it's interesting, because that's another mm -hmm. area where I can really relate to it. It's a lot of people who are sort of very ambitious and hardcore, um, and that can be really helpful in a lot of situations, but really harmful in others. And what you just kind of brought up of that, we wait until it's at its extreme to address it, is very much what we're seeing there. People don't necessarily recognize those early symptoms of feeling really disengaged. Maybe, you know, when a patient comes in being less patient with them and, and sort of like resenting them and, and, and just not being able to connect, like those early signs, whether we're a physician, a parent, anything we do in the world, um, oftentimes we see that and we think I can just push it away. Yeah. Um, and that's not strength. Strength is not, like it's a strong thing to continue enduring 100%. But even stronger than that is saying, I'm going to continue showing up and I'm actually going to look at this and I'm going to see how I can ask for help. And oftentimes, at least in my experience, the biggest obstacle to asking for help was my own ego. Um, mm -hmm. Was me thinking, oh, that, but I'm strong. I'm not the person that needs help. 
And I think we really need to reframe that as a society to say, hey, no, it's really strong to ask for help because that's scary. Um, and so how can we reframe the stories we tell ourselves about what strength is, about what health is, uh, about what community is, about how we show up? I think the stories define how we experience the world. And if we can't, we can't control the thoughts and the feelings that come into our heads. I've tried. Uh, <laughs> and, but what sort of my deep study in meditation and spirituality in psychology, this entire world that I dove into because my inner world was so challenging um, has really given me the gift of is seeing like, okay, I can't control what comes in, but I can control how I react to it. Yeah. Um, and sometimes what that means is, yeah, I don't get out of bed for a day. Um, like I'm just not able to, I don't see that as failure anymore in the moment. It can feel like that. Um, but being able to, to acknowledge like, Hey, I am, I'm in the arena. I'm in the battle. Um, and being able to see some of those different thought processes, see those different emotional patterns come up and choose to not say I'm weak. I'm a failure but saying, how can I be with this? How can I learn from this? How can this be the thing that helps build the calluses on my hand so that I can climb even further and that I can climb better? And that that takes time um, rather than just the thing that continues to bury me. Um, and that's really hard, like that's strength. Strength is not smooth sailing on a clear lake where nothing comes in your way. We, when we look at the greatest uh, sailor or, or, or captain or I'm not a naval expert, <laughs> um, but when we look at that, when, when we look to define who is the greatest, it would be the person who's faced these massive storms and has somehow, even when it, there's no hope, even when they can't see the end of the storm, still hangs on and wow. still through. And that's how we build those skills is by continuing to face those storms. We learn something new if we're willing to see it. Um, and it doesn't mean the storms become easy, but it means that our tool belt widens um, and that we can face it in a different way. And that when we get out of the other side, we can get more lessons from it um, and that we can enjoy those calmer periods uh, to a deeper level, I think. Yeah, I'm so glad you are. So I could say amen to all of what you just did. Uh, you just said, I'm so glad that you addressed strength versus resilience because most of the time when people hear resilience they have this idea of pushing through when I can make it kind of fake strength because this is not strength it is strong until I break uh, in, in half totally so absolutely and I get you know there's a lot of people that try and point to me and say you're so resilient you're so resilient um, and I can obviously say thank you and appreciate it but it's really important to me when that happens to sort of pause and say I'll take that, but I need you to also, as you're looking at, you're looking at point A and point C, and you're kind of yeah. missing years of really intense struggle. Um, and so for me, if someone calls me resilient, I say, you can only call me that if you're willing to look at all of my lows, because if we're only looking at those really hard things and then how I came out of it, and you don't see that low, then I'm part of the problem, um, because then that creates a false expectation. And that it comes sort of to that difference between resilience and post-traumatic growth. Yeah. Because they're two different things. And what the research has shown around post-traumatic growth is that the more that we're shaken, to a certain degree, it can go too far. Yeah. It's not if it breaks us that yeah. too far. Yeah. But, um, but that 
oftentimes when it shakes our view of the world um, and we can't like our mental constructs can't assimilate the degree of challenge we're in that discomfort um, and that really falling apart feeling is completely correlated to the amount of growth we can have on the other side. Yeah. Um, and when psychologists that study that really have look at you know, development theory from Piaget to uh, William Perry, all these different people who studied um, how people grow and develop, the key to growth is that discomfort period. That's what gets us from one stage to the next when we're forced to reconstruct. Um, and when we reconstruct, we rebuild better uh, and wider and deeper. So we don't like, like that just the uncomfortable feeling isn't fun, but there's no such thing as growth without that sense of challenge. Yeah, you have to be small first to, to grow. <laughs> If you're already tall, you won't grow at all. Yeah. Exactly. I totally agree on that. Resilience for me, it's all the time. It's not when, again, maybe it has to do with what I was doing, what I was saying about crisis and this before, after, and the crisis is in the middle, but the resilience, it's all the time. When you are in the low, that's when you need your resilience. It's not when, you know, people use sometimes bounce back or cope with, and maybe this is, Maybe this is a part of resilience, but it's not at all a synonym for it, at, uh, by yeah. and large, yeah. Actually, I would love to know what was the shift when you were in your experience that, how did you come from, okay, I mean, all these pains and with all these difficult experiences to, to what actually? How did you do that? <laughs> And it was, and it was years, you know, I talk about yeah. uh, the experience of losing, you know, my health, my dignity, my mind. Um, those were really scary things, nearly my life. Mm. And in an 18 month period, when I was in college, after my accident, I, I had that, I it was dealing with post traumatic stress with these daily panic attacks. Um, I experienced sexual assault uh, less than a year later. Uh, and that was, uh, as many people have experienced, that loss of dignity um, and this sort of well of self-hatred that can come from that mm. uh, followed right after that. And then I developed a neurological disorder where it took them months to diagnose it. Um, and rather than a short-term crisis, mm. it was a longer form where it was this months of my body was deteriorating. I lost the ability to handwrite. I felt, I felt like I was a sinking ship. Wow. Um, that there was no way to pull it out. Mm. Uh, and so it was, I mean, it was punch after punch. Yeah. And so it, was, like it was, very, <laughs> yeah. And it was, and it, I, at that point I had started asking for help. You know, I, mm. and that was a gift is I was really relying on my family and my therapist, but I still wasn't, it wasn't like I turned around right away. I kind of doubled down. There's some people who face an extraordinary challenge and then they change their life and it's really amazing. Um, mine did not work in that. <laughs> so what I did is I said, okay, here's the things that I decided are going to define my identity. Uh -huh. I'm going to double down on that. Um, and so I just kept going. And from the outside, I would have looked super resilient um, because I was staying in school and I was getting amazing grades and I was getting these amazing jobs. Um, and it wasn't until a couple of years later, I was working at Google in Silicon Valley where Um, my health just started spiraling downward for about a year. And um, I eventually took medical leave because both mentally and physically mm -hmm. um, 
it was just, I, I couldn't hang. It was, it was catching up to me. Uh, I didn't know what it was. And I was lucky to have access to some incredible medical professionals where essentially one of them, after doing all these tests and these backgrounds had said, listen, it's not one thing. Your body has this neurological disorder. It has long-term effects of PTSD. It has all these different things, but essentially he was like, you need to deal with your shit. Uh, so it was kind of um, all these hard crises that you have one after the other, then coming kind of back at you and saying, hey, now is the time that we need to exactly, deal with that. Exactly. And so the way I look at it is like, you know, sometimes people get hints from the universe and they listen to them and they change their life and it's beautiful. And I so applaud and respect that. And it would be lovely <laughs> if that's how I worked, but uh, I can sometimes be a bit stubborn. So I like to say, you know, some people get hints. I needed a frying pan across the head from the universe. Like I needed something very strong. So I'm very grateful because if I didn't have all those really intense things that really brought me to my knees, I could have stayed doing things I wasn't passionate about and I could have tolerated for much longer. So for me, I'm very grateful that I hit my max and what I couldn't tolerate at 25 um, because then I, it forced me really to take a step back and reevaluate my life at such an early age. And what I ended up doing was saying, I can't be here. Um, like just saying, I need a break from this. I was so high achieving. I was so focused. But again, going back to that idea of I had buried these things. I hadn't actually healed yeah. from them. And so now they were sprouting in ways that were really strong and powerful. So I was very lucky that I could quit my job and buy a one-way ticket uh, to Myanmar and backpack through Southeast Asia um and really explore not but you don't have to leave your entire life behind to start to do that mm -hmm. internal work um mine definitely my story definitely takes dramatic turns on each type of chapter but it was really through stepping away from my life um and saying okay without the job without the title without community yeah. around me without all these things that i've used to define myself what am i who am i um those are hard questions. Yeah. <laughs> and that to me was what really changed my life was starting to let go of the things that had held me up the most. Um, and from there, it's been a very magical journey in terms of I never thought I'd be doing emotional fitness work. And I never thought I would live in Australia and run a yoga school with a friend and get into all of these things. But what happened was I just decided to take a very dramatically different direction and see what happened. And people started coming into my life and I started and showing up in ways I could not have planned and teaching me the things I didn't know I needed to learn. Um, and an opening to that desperation can be an incredible tool because it opens us to things we would have never otherwise seen. Yeah. It breaks so, the resistance, right? Exactly. So I consider it like desperation and incredible, both in my experience and you know, with the book that I wrote with my dad uh, where I'm telling his story desperation was really a huge tool in most of his, what you would see now is wild successes. So it's really reframing, seeing the dark side of our strengths, seeing the downsides and, and the sort of underbelly of the things that, may, that we see as the strongest parts of ourselves is so important. But also looking at what we see as our weaknesses, as our downsides, as our darknesses, and saying, you know, what are the strengths in that? What are the gifts in that? Really seeing more of the texture of the roller coaster that we're riding. 
So is that how you turn your pain into power? Yeah. So for me, I would say it was learning how to see the teachers inside my hardest mm. moment. Uh, and when I got to con not control so much, but when I got to find the lessons in it um, and that learning, that gave me power back. And I would say nowhere is that more potent for me than experiencing sexual violence. See, I was uh, experienced sexual assault three times between the ages of 17 and 20. Wow. Um, and it took me, I was not like, I can talk about it openly now. It's been years of really hard work. Uh, it did not look like that in the beginning. And it was a lot of very unhealthy coping mechanisms, mm -hmm. which I only fueled the sense of self-hatred. But when I look at that and, you know, for anyone here who's experienced that and who's coped in ways that weren't healthy, like I think all of us, we do the best we can. And sometimes the best we can looks like harming ourselves. Yeah. Uh, and what we're doing is what looks like harming ourselves is actually trying to numb or cope with this amount of pain that we feel like we can't hold. Um, so I've learned, it's been a big practice in self-compassion to look at these ways that I hurt myself, I hurt the people around me. Um, and to be able to, to, to look at that and say, I learned from that, I've, I'm healing from that, I've reached out to the people in my life that you know, I wasn't the most supportive friend to. Um, and getting to grow from that has been really powerful, but um, you know, forgiveness has been a huge journey for me. Mm -hmm. And I found um, it was actually, I was able to forgive the men that assaulted me before I was able to forgive myself. And that was a hard thing to acknowledge the fact that like, I could forgive something so huge, but I still blamed myself. Um, because the way I look at forgiveness is it is not about the other person. It has nothing to do with that. It has something to do with them, but you know, it's not about them. It's about freedom internally. Mm -hmm. um, because when we hold on to hate and when we hold on to those really deep, nasty emotions, um, it's kind of like the, you know, the saying I really like is it's like drinking poison yes. and expecting someone else to feel the pain. And so for me, it was really about freedom. And so when I was able to say, I'm taking control of how I get to learn from them. I'm taking control of sharing this after a lot of healing work, um, sharing, sharing the story because I had so much privilege in the support I was able to get. Um, you know, I didn't share openly until after that third assault. And the reason I did share was because I was just non-functional and it was scarier for my parents to see the medical problems I was having as a result of trauma without the explanation than to say, Oh, this is actually related to trauma. Um, yes. and I'm not, I don't have a brain tumor. I don't have, you know, it, it's, I'm not dying. Um, I'm, I just sort of feel like I am sometimes, but, uh, when we can, at least in my experience, doing that healing work, owning my story and sharing my story, and then being able to be the support for other people, that brought so much power into my life. And then eventually what I found is when I was able to help and support more people, I looked at it and I was like, huh, I actually see this as I wouldn't take back those assaults. I actually feel like now they're a net positive impact in the world because I've used this really horrible thing, these really horrible things that have happened to bring so much good into the world. Um, and that was powerful. That was like the most empowering FU ever to be like, I have the power and I get to decide how this story plays out. And it doesn't mean that there's not times that I feel like I am punched in the gut um, in the U S especially with, you know, the Kavanaugh hearings back in the fall, I thought I had done my work. 
there's so many times where it's like, oh, I've done my work, I'm fine. And that's when we kind of need that reminder of like, yeah. no, you don't control this. <laughs> but being yeah. able to then um, really surrender into it and show up for other people is how I turn my pain into power, is using those challenges as teachers. And that doesn't only take work, that takes time. Yeah. And that is, patience is a very hard thing. When we're <laughs> yeah, it's when you used to make it happen kind of thing, it's, it takes yeah, a lot of patience to wait and, and let things unfold. When you're talking about forgiveness, and I think it's so important, yeah, to forgive, but first, what sometimes people forget is before forgiving, you need to face the emotions, you need to face what's, what there is. And then from there, you can forgive. If you do it too, too soon, you're just, it's just a, a kind of bypass or a kind of denial. Exactly. It's that bearing. Like people sometimes think, like, I think it's very easy to be like, oh, forgiveness, like it sounds so fluffy and whatever. It's like, no, the process of forgiveness means first, like how do you tap into that rage? Yeah. Like how do you, for me, being able to tap into that and express it fully was how I was necessary to get to a true forgiveness, whether it was rage uh, and anger or extreme sadness, like all the whole emotional spectrum. It's not about ignoring it. It's about letting it move through us. Mm. Um, and that's, I love that you brought that up. It's a key, key part of the process. Um, so it's, yeah, hugely important. Yeah, no, I love what you said earlier about when you don't talk, it's like planting toxic seeds they will always show up in other forums. So how do you begin to see talking as part of the healing, as a necessary way to, to go forward? Absolutely. So first of all, it was a lot of time just focused on my inner work and not mm. talking. So I definitely want to highlight, it wasn't a jumping straight to that because if no, we yeah. talk publicly before we're ready, um, that can actually do more damage. Yeah. But I had been, you know, I'd come back from Australia. I was back in the States. Um, and I honestly, it came from a place of guilt. Uh, it came from a place of, I've had so much privilege in that my, my family is so emotionally supportive. Uh, you know, when I look at coming out of the hospital, my parents financially supported me. If I didn't have my fa parents' financial support coming out of the hospital, mm. I would still be in debt. I would have dropped out of college. I likely would have been homeless. Um, like I just saw it and I saw there's so many people who go through these experiences don't have the same resources that I had. Um, and I, if I was struggling this much, I can't imagine what they're experiencing. Um, and so I just started feeling all of this guilt for all of these resources that I did have. So eventually I paused and I thought, okay, um, this guilt isn't helping anyone. Like this isn't making other people, me feeling bad doesn't make other people feel better, um, but it's an energy. Right? When I look at our, our emotions, whether it's positive or especially when they're negative, like it's a huge energy source. So rather than saying, how do I get rid of it? I like to look at like, okay, if that, if there's a huge energy source, how do I use it? How do I harness it? How can I maybe shift its trajectory a bit to have a more positive impact? So what I did with guilt was say, okay, this is really strong. It's really overwhelming. Don't like it. How can I use it? And so for me, I looked at, okay, well, really powerful things for me. We're seeing stories of people who had gone through some of the things I had gone through who spoke publicly because it made me feel less alone. Yeah. Uh, and when a lot of the times the people who need it the most are the ones who don't reach out, the ones who don't tell anyone. So I thought, okay, I can just focus on all the things I have felt the most shame around and all the things that aren't talked about. Um, and let me start talking about those 
because then I don't know who needs to hear it, but then at least I'll be using this privilege that I've gotten um, to support other people and to have the conversations I needed to hear. Um, and so it was really focused on channeling that guilt because mind you, I did not want to be talking about this publicly. It was terrifying. Sure. Um, and I, I didn't want to be defined by yeah. my hardest experiences. Yeah. Um, but when I did start talking about it and it wasn't just, here's these really horrible things, but it was, here's my relationship and here's how I've worked with it. And it get, I had the power in how I shared the story. Um, I had no idea how healing that would be. Um, and I had no idea how much that would change me. I was just trying to shift how guilt was affecting me. Um, but it was really beautiful to see that, you know, going back to that seed idea, like when these seeds were ripped out from the ground, um, it actually created space for these other things to bloom that I had no idea would come. Um, and it's been the most positive, life-changing experience I've ever had. And it's changed my relationships with myself hugely, but also with other people, you know, that my, not just my personal friends, but all my parents' friends, the community I grew up in, these people that I never really, there's people I never went deep with, that I never had conversations with, where, you know, all of a sudden they come up and they have this, something to share in a very deep way. And when I am so open, it makes it safe for them to be vulnerable. And so now it's just like all of my relationships are so much deeper because the things I was scared of sharing are out in the open. And then people are say, okay, you'll do that. Well, I can put mine too. Mm. Uh, and when we talk about the purpose of life, like meaning and connection and depth to me are my reason of living. And this has given me so much more of that. So I feel like it's just made my life so much more full. Yeah. Wow. That's beautiful. And you were talking about the danger of being defined by your worst moments or your stories when you begin to talk about it, but what I feel and what, what is my personal story is, is um, until I actually owned my story and was okay and at ease talking about it, I actually was defining myself by that. And it was against my will, of course. I didn't want to do that and I hated that, but I was doing that and others was, were doing it too. But I guess it was also in, re in reaction or in response to how I was living this. And I'm not saying, I mean, yeah, there are people who react badly. Like, for example, mine was the, uh, my father's suicide. So, of course, yes, there are people who react badly or they, they think they are being nice, but they really don't know <laughs> what to say. And, and it's being, they are being terrible. <laughs> but in the end, I was the one always defining myself and always coming back to this story. So when I began to own this and, and being more relaxed about it, I began to, yeah, to breathe actually and to, like you say, to have other things in my life and not only this one, like, oh, there was that. And from there, my life is like that. No, I did many things in my life and this is one, but it's yeah. not my life. It's just one thing that happened to me. Yeah. Exactly. I think there's so much power in, uh, in excavating those things mm. and, and, and it's not just the bad things that we're highlighting. Um, it's our reaction. It's how we've grown from it. Yeah. And it's full story. Yeah. Uh, and I work a lot, uh, yeah, I, I, as a crisis consultant, I work with people in suicide prevention. I work with people, um, and support people in their, in their darkest moments. And so often it's isolation and loneliness. Yeah. 
that yeah. leads us there. I, I worked with one person, the one line that really stuck with me was someone I was working with and saying, you know, it's not just one thing. It's a million little heartbreaks that lead yeah. to a barrel against your head. Um, and we can't control the heartbreaks that life gives us. And some of us get a lot deeper, harsher, more brutal ones than others, but we can control the ability of not just bearing them in um, and letting them pile up, but trying to find the spaces. And that's the key is some of us have more resources and spaces of people that can hold that space for us versus mm -hmm. others. And that's why community is so important. Uh, yeah. And that's why, you know, the, honestly, why I do the crisis counseling work that I do, I think it's, I consider it sacred work, being with people in the deepest, darkest moment, like that's truth that desperation, that like, yeah. I'm opening up this part of myself I've never let anyone see because I don't have a choice. It's do this or sometimes do this or literally die. Uh, yeah. To me, like that's profound uh, and it's really powerful. And I think the more going back to that idea of we don't start training for a marathon when we get there, practicing being able to acknowledge our challenging feelings, open them up, share them, whether it's with a friend or a therapist or you know, for some people I say that I work with, I say, you know, if sharing it with a real person is too scary, write an anonymous letter. Um, yeah. There's a, there's an organization called Post Secret where you can literally send in your secrets um, and you can read other people's secrets. It doesn't have to, there's a whole spectrum of ways we can do it, but if we can practice taking those little heartbreaks, bringing them out and working with them, that's again, where turning that pain into power happens. Um, but discernment is key because it's not share it with everyone and anyone because there's some people where if we share it with yeah. them, they'll make it worse. So um, it's about being able to start to identify and find those places. And with the internet and with, the, with technology and phones, like that everyone can find a way of somewhere to share it. It might not be our first choice, but there's always options of places to do that work. And that is the end of this episode. Thanks everyone for listening. Stay tuned for the second part of this conversation with Charlie next week. As always, check the website integralealive.com for the show notes. If you like what you hear, subscribe to the podcast and rate it on iTunes. You will help more people get access to this information. And if you know someone who would benefit from hearing this, please do share. Till next time. And until then, keep sparking life and going from alive to alive. Bye, à bientôt.